This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, in for Terry Gross. Tom Bell, one of the principal architects of the Philly Sound, died late last month at the age of 79. Today, we're going to listen to Terry's 2006 interview with him. Bell was a songwriter, arranger, and producer, and a classically trained pianist. You could hear that influence in his work. He brought violin, harp, French horn, oboe, sitar, timpani, and other instruments to his arrangements. He arranged Drowning in the Sea of Love by Joe Simon and Backstabbers by the OJs. Before that, he worked with the Philadelphia label Cameo Records. He co-wrote the stylistics hits You Are Everything, Betcha by Golly Wow, Break Up to Makeup, and You Make Me Feel Brand New. For the spinners, he co-composed I'll Be Around. When Bell was a teenager, he conducted and arranged for fellow Philadelphian Chubby Checker, whose dance records included the number one hit, The Twist. Bell was born in Jamaica and moved to Philly as a child. In 2020, a compilation album of Bell's work called Ready or Not, Philly Soul Arrangements and Productions was released by Ace Records. Bell was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and received the Rhythm and Blues Foundation Pioneer Award. Terry Gross spoke with Tom Bell in 2006. Let's start with a song he co-wrote for the Delphonics. La La Means I Love You. Many guys have come to you With a line that wasn't true And you passed them by Let me try Now I don't wear a diamond ring I don't even know a song to sing All I know is la 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 I love you Oh baby please now La 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 I needed in this world you are the one for me one for me That's the Delphonics recorded in 1968 produced arranged and co-written by my guest Tom Bell and conducted and conducted thank you <laughs> Tom Bell welcome to Fresh Air Well thank you thank you we appreciate being here Well we <laughs> just heard one of your early hits would you talk a little bit about your concept for that record Lala means I love you I've always because I was studying to be a concert pianist from the time I was uh, six until I was 22. You're talking about classical music. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was studying to be. I worked with uh, Andre Watts at the time, really? which was, uh, as you know, he, the number one, not only the black pianist, but a, a concert pianist, period. And, and one, a, one of the few African-American, right, very successful right, classical man. musicians of his generation. When we were kids... Uh, we should do, in those days, they were called recitals. Now they're called concerts. We'd do our little, play our little things and our little um, prelude in C sharp and play uh, Chopin and different things like that. And by the time I was 18, I found that um, 
Articulating someone else's music was not quite what I wanted to do. There are people who can articulate it and articulate it well. I got bored with that. They keep playing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And um, three hours, four hours a day from the time I was six, eight, ten, twelve years of age. Keep doing the same thing over new pieces, but you keep doing everything to, to perfect it. When is it perfected? Is it perfected when you don't make mistakes? Is it perfected when you have the uh, the tonality correctly? Is it uh, perfected when you have the fingering correct? So I started. I was hearing different chords, different progressions, different variations of the themes of what I was doing, and I started doing that. Uh, but you can't really do that with the master's um, uh, creations. So. The question you asked me about what what sound was I looking for and different it was a sound in my mind because of the classical background in which I had um, come from. I was hearing things more like that because until I was about um, thirteen or fourteen years of age, I didn't even listen to radio. I had never heard of uh, uh, the the so called rock and roll, so called. So 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 you didn't know pop music. You didn't no, know soul music. No, but what I heard rhythm what and I, blues. What I heard it was strictly coming from the uh, the symph- the symphonic end. So so you, you kind of brought. Well, I did. You I know, brought you had all strings of and harps. Brought and all those things from what I would had come from the world I had come from, mm-hmm. and that the very first thing I heard that really made me believe what I was hearing was was fantastic it was a. a, a a guy named Don Costa. Don Costa was a fantastic arrangement, fantastic arrangement. I heard him and arranged uh, Going Out of My Head with Lil Anthony and the Imperials. Oh, did he do that? He's, uh, he's yeah. most famous for his Sinatra oh, yeah. arrangements. And uh, yeah. Teddy Randazzle was the writer. He and uh, I think Weinstein, I believe that was his name. But I always remember Teddy Randazzle because I met him once and that was the, the highlight of my life. And I'm going out of my head on the outside looking in. And that that's when I was really turned on to hearing what, what I was hearing. That's why you hear um, the Delphonics have that tenor voice. And also, too, because my voice is rather high. I've been confused many times of being a female on the phone. They talk to me. I say, hello. They say, oh, hello, Mrs. Bell. Is your husband there? Oh. <laughs> Wait, did you sing in falsetto? <laughs> yeah, I'm a natural tenor. I don't have a falsetto. But I'm, I'm naturally high like that, so oh. I, I hear high artists. Well, let's hear another record that you arranged. And you're talking about the classical influence on your music because you you were brought up playing classical yes. music. Okay, so so we're going to hear something from the Stylistics, which is um, an, another band that you work with. And this is this is the early seventies. We're talking was a group, a yeah, band, right? Yeah. Okay. So so we're going to hear "Betcha by Golly Wow," another Alrighty. song that that you co-wrote, and this has this has a kind of long symphonic introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so before it, we hear it, I, I, I want to ask you: How Did I you can. think? Yeah, did you think that this would be a good thing, a long symphonic introduction, or did you think, well, the soul music crowd might get a little impatient while this introduction is playing? First place, there are areas of uh, music that people do want to hear. They were, I've had many people say, black people don't want to hear that, and black people don't do this, and black people don't do that. That's a misconception. And these were black people who were telling me, they don't want to hear that kind of music. Man, they're not interested. Well, I didn't believe that. It sounded good to me. So um, how the Betcha By Golly Wow came about, and meanwhile, uh, in, the, um, in the history of songwriters, there have been many songs written, I love you, I love you, and there are a lot of different versions of those same words or any reasonable facsimile of those words. 
but there's only one bet you by golly wow, only one in, in history. <laughs> only one, because I was the only one crazy enough to write something like Linda Creed and myself. And I came up with the bet you by golly oh, you wow. Do? Oh, yeah, yeah. It takes a nut to do something like that. She's a lyricist, so I think oh, she was, was the best. Was she, she yeah. was, that, that's one of, the, one of the rare times that she didn't, didn't write the lyric. I, I came up with it, and she looked at me like I was crazy. She said, Belle, you're nuts. And no one ever called her Linda. We always called her Creed. Creed, listen, listen to the idea, the concept of what I'm talking about. All of those words are words, elements of express of surprise. Golly, gee, wow, ooh, and and the words similar like that. They were elements of of expressions. So I wonder, hmm, when can I put those together and to to uh, come up with a concept of uh, writing? With that, so that's where that came. So there was a there were a twofold factor why did, they came about. Did anyone say to you those are corny expressions? Of course, uh-huh. they they they. But over the years, I had learned never to let people hear my thoughts. It's like in The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, my man told his son, "He said, hey, what's wrong with you? You never let people know your thoughts." Well. I had been called whacked in the head as a child, <laughs> and uh, they wanted me. The, the, the teachers wanted me. The principal of the school wanted the, my mother to take me to the psychiatrist because he was a little kid. He hears music, and it, that, that's unco- that's. Oh, he just you just heard music. I in just your heard head. in my mind, and I'm singing and tapping on things. They thought something was wrong with me, so I had learned to keep all those kinds of thoughts, even to this day, to myself. And you never you never know what 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 lyric or melody is running through my mind. Now, one more thing before we actually hear Betcha by Golly Wow. Is that an oboe in the beginning? Yes, that that's, uh, let's see, was that an oboe? Was that uh, uh, Coin Glazy? That was an oboe. A Coin Glazy is an English horn. I would, I would uh, use them uh, interspersed. I would intersperse the two, depending on the key. Okay, well, let's hear Betcha by Golly Wow, co-written by my guest Tom Bell. He also arranged it, produced it, and, and conducted, conducted it. And prayed for it. You name it, I did it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> big, big hit from 1972. And this is The Stylistics. Star to shine. 
This is Stylistics, and the song was co-written, produced, arranged, and conducted by my guest, Tom Bell. You know, we talked about the oboe at the beginning there. What's the most unusual instruments that you've ever used? Let me say this. Each instrument is designed for a specific kind of reaction that you're trying to get or a feeling that you're trying to relay. Um, So when you say unusual, they all are unusual if you don't put them in the correct places where they're supposed to be. I think the most that one of the most different instruments would be the andolin or the chitarona. Those are Italian instruments that uh, not too many people use. Um, Inyo Marconi, uh, the, the the great uh, conductor and the creator of uh, stuff such as Good, Bad, and Ugly, a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, the Untouchables, things of that nature. He was a he was a a um, one of my one of my inspirations. And I met him over in Milano. And um, Inyo Marconi introduced me to a few of those, uh, like I say, the Kidarona, uh, Andaline. Those are, are different kinds of, kind of instruments. When you take a group like the Stylistics into the studio and you want them to get a sense of your concept mm-hmm. for the sound of the record, mm-hmm. how would you describe it to them? Would you sing them all their parts? Yes. What I do, once I, once I narrow that melody down, once I work on it, work on it, work on it, until I cannot get any further, and uh, Linda Creed, uh, or William Hart, or Denise Williams, or, or, or Phil Hurt, and the writers, but mostly Creed, uh, would work on it and do their part, work hard, we work real hard, and uh, get it, hone it till it's, till it, till it's, it's, uh, it's pinnacle, it's apex, it's, it's the top, it's sharp, it's about the best we can. Then I, in turn, bring the artists in. And I explain the song to them, and then I sing the song to them. Um, now, once you know the song, once you sing the song and you get the concept in your mind of what exactly what I wanted to do, I put it on tape for you. And they don't even, they don't even hear the music until it's time to record. Once I bring them back in, I put them on the piano again. So they'll know exactly where to come. So when they hear that music, they're, they're so ready, they're so charged, they're so energized when they hear that music. That, that's my moment. That's when I know I've done the right thing. When they hear that music and their eyes light up and they, they just can't wait. They, they, they can't wait to add their part to it. Well, Tom Bell, let's go a little deeper back into your career. Before we get to your work with Philadelphia International Records, let's start with some other Philadelphia-related uh, work. And that is one of, your, one of your first real major music jobs was what conducting for Chubby Checker. Ah, Yes. Uh, who, this was before or after he had his big hit, The Twist? Oh, this was after. This was after. Not only did I conduct him, I was a songwriter for his company. Uh, oh, what did you, oh, you, for Both, Cameo Parkway? Yes. Yeah. No, for his publishing Oh, for company. his own company? Yes, for, for, um, Chubby's, he had, uh, Evans, uh, Evans, I think it was Evans Music, Evansville, one of the two, and, uh, I made $29 a week as a writer. For, wow. his, for his company. Don't spend it all in one place. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> so uh, what was your job working with Chubby Checker? Uh, actually, I was um, a writer for his publishing company and uh, also writing music for his some of his shows and doing a little conducting for him. And, and I think you were the house pianist for yeah. Cameo Parkway Records, which was a Philadelphia label that had a lot of hits with the hope of getting played on Dick Clark's American yes. Bandstand, yes. which, like the record label, was in Philadelphia. 
working as a house pianist for a record label, did you learn things not only that you wanted to do when you got into the studio, but things that you did not want to do? Did you learn some of the wrong ways as well as the right ways? What I did was, yes, I did. I learned, uh, I watched. I watched the um, things that uh, took a long time to do because things weren't prepared correctly. And I watched things that went smoothly because things were prepared correctly. And I learned that uh, don't waste time in a studio. Waste time before you get to the studio where it doesn't cost anything. So if you're going to do anything, you practice, rehearse, practice, rehearse, get it all down pat, and put it on that paper so when you bring it to that studio, it's ready. It doesn't cost a lot of extra money to do things. And don't waste a lot of time. Wasting time is what costs a lot of money, and it gets boring. Let's get to something that you're very well known for, which is your work for Philadelphia International Records, Mm -hmm. which uh, creates what became known as the Philly Sound, Mm -hmm. label created by uh, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. And you were a key arranger in there. Um, You met Gamble in a singing group, right? In the Romeos? You sang with his... No, no, I met him before that. Before that? Yeah, my sister... I have a sister that was in his room in school, at high school. And he happened, she happened to help him uh, do his homework. At least that's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a I see feeling. where you're going. Uh, and uh, he came in, and I was at the piano rehearsal. He said, hey, man, you play piano. I said, yes. He said, I write songs. I said, that's great. He said, my name is Kenny Gamble. And you're who? I'm Tommy Bell. That's what everyone knows me as time, which is it was Tommy Bell all, all my life until I got big and all of a sudden they said, well, let's change it to Tom Bell. Okay, I don't care. Long as you don't call me too late for dinner. What the heck? And so he said, maybe one day we can write together. Do you write too? I said, yes, I have a couple of ideas. He said, maybe we can. And then, do you sing too? Yep. And he came by a couple of weeks later and we started writing and singing and away we went. In fact, we even made a record together called uh, Someday. So when, they, when he started the record label, he asked you to work there too? Yes, I was working for um, another company, uh, Philly Groove Records with the Delphonics at the time. And that uh, I was leaving that situation because they were going in another direction the company was. And I was going in another direction. So uh, in 1970, after I did the last one with the Delphonics, which was Did Not Blow Your Mind this time, they asked me when I come down and help them. Uh, form this company and uh, do the music. I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. What the heck? And so that's we started from there. Did you have different resources when you were working for Philadelphia International than you did before that? Did you have more money to produce things? Did you have a bigger yeah. orchestra at your disposal, different kind of rhythm section? Well, you, you, um, they had the rhythm section. When, when, what they would do, I was in the rhythm section, and that was when it was um, Baker Harris Young, and Vince Montana and a few more than Larry Washington and Bobby Eli and myself. And I was on and Huff. And we were the rhythm section. So they were doing Jerry Butler at the time and Wilson Pickett and a few more of the artists. And then when it came time for me to do the 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 sweet, what we call the sweetening, the strings and horns, uh, things, I had a, a little bit bigger budget. Whereas when I started with uh, 1968, I would use six violins, four, viol- four violins, one viola, one cello. When I got with them, I started using nine violins, four violas, and a cello. And then as we grew and grew and grew, we got to be 18, 19, 20 violins, uh, six violas, and two cellos. And you started using the contrabass. So, yes, your, 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 um, your pocketbook, your expenditures got bigger and your budget got bigger. 
Composer, arranger, and producer Tom Bell speaking with Terry Gross in 2006. He was one of the architects of the Philly sound. Bell died last month at the age of 79. Here's a track he arranged in 1971, Joe Simon's Drowning in the Sea of Love. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. I've been down one time And I've been down two times But now I'm drowning Drowning in the sea of love Let me tell you all about I've been out here so very long I've lost all of my direction Baby, when you came my way Let's get back to Terry's 2006 interview with Tom Bell, one of the key architects of the Philadelphia Sound. He died last month at the age of 79. He was an arranger for Philadelphia International Records and also wrote and produced hits by the Stylistics, the Spinners, and the Delphonics. Here's a song he co-wrote that became a big hit for the Stylistics in 1974. Only you When you think of the Philly sound, what comes to your mind? What comes to mind is um, cheesesteaks. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> and when I say cheesesteaks, I mean that there's only one place in the world that you can get a fantastic cheesesteak, and that's Philadelphia. And I don't care where you go. You can find the, the, the mom-and-pop store in the corner, or you can buy Pat's, or you can go to any of the large places. They're all great cheesesteaks. And need some of this a little different. Some use shank. Some use the butt. Some use chuck. Some use a, a rump roast. Some they all it's cut down real thin. Some use mozzarella cheese. Some use um, um, regular American cheese. Some you take some with lettuce and tomatoes on it. Some will take it with meatball sauce. But you can't beat a you, you can't beat a Philadelphia steak sandwich. And uh, when you think of the uh, of our PIR and our whole Philadelphia thing. We were a version of the of the steak sandwich, the only one of its kind. Now you had great great companies, but we were the only one like ourselves. When, when you're asked to describe what the Philly sound means to you, can you break it down musically into something that you think is unique about those Philadelphia productions? You can break it down musically into different modes of chord structures augmented and diminished and um, major minor chords 
other cities were doing the same. They were doing, see, there are 88 keys on a piano. Why is it that one can come and make it sound like one thing, another person can come along and make it sound like something else, but yet it's the same 88 keys. The, the keys haven't changed. What has changed is the is the depth of field, the variations, and the, the feel of the person who's creating them. So our sound and what we did was a part of us. It's, it's, a, it's a part of you. It's part of what you, I always said, it was something you felt, you smelt, or you dealt. It's <laughs> <laughs> something you did, something you felt. So it's, it's all part of you and what you see. Uh, for instance, real quick, um, one day when, when Cree and I wouldn't, couldn't come up with anything, we would uh, uh, just get up and walk out in the street. So we're walking down the street, boom, 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 we're looking around, things, because there's always something in the street to write about. There's always events. And I happened to see this guy, when I was at Broad and Chestnut, and I saw this guy crossing, we were all crossing, and the guy stopped in the middle of the street and looked back. And he went a couple more, then he looked back again. He's looking at this woman. And uh, he called out this girl's name. Hey, so-and-so, I couldn't hear the name, and was chasing, and the girl looked at him like he was crazy. He said, oh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, but he couldn't believe it wasn't who he thought it was. I was watching this. I said, Creed, I got it. I got an idea. Went back and wrote it. Today I saw somebody who looked just like you. So walked like you do. I thought it was you. As she turned the corner, I called out her name. I felt so ashamed when it wasn't you. I saw that because you were everything and everything. I saw that happen. It's like we saw that when people make the world around a trash man didn't get my trash today. Those things happen. We were the kind of writers that we were very, um, we, we, were, we weren't abstract writers. And we were, we were, we weren't, we were futuristic and very real. The things we wrote, very rarely did we write anything that was, uh, that was odd. Uh, uh, things that were non-realistic. I want to play uh, what was one of the first big hits for Philadelphia International Records, and it's uh, it's a, a record that you arranged, and it's uh, the OJ's Backstabbers, mm-hmm. um, which has a, a very dramatic <laughs> introduction. Talk about the introduction that you put together for this record. When they gave me the track, uh, the tracks were done, the rhythm tracks were done already, and uh, some of those things, uh, the guitar parts, were in there something like that, and I, what all I did was to broaden those those things. And the the beginning was um, uh, what I what we call mysterioso. It's very mysterious, very dramatic. It had a very um, um, when that when that thing hit, boy, it made your made your open your eyes, it made your ears open, it made your body say, "Whoa, what was that?" And to me, I always felt. That from the very beginning, from the first time he put the needle down, that's when they had records, of course. When he put the needle down on the record, it's supposed to say something. And, and you, when you're dealing with the civilian, dealing with the customer, what I call see, uh, the civilians and customers, you give them something. To, when they're paying for something, give them, give them your best, uh, your best creative things. And from the very moment that needle goes down, you want it to be a memorable occasion. You wanted, you wanted to grab them and say, oh, what was that? And the next bar, each bar means something. So what kind of mood did you want here and what kind of sound in that, in that dramatic introduction? Grandiose. 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 I, did, uh, I did, let's see, in the beginning that the strings were doing uh, tremolandos and um, 
In the very beginning, did a, a, a sweep, did a glissando with the harp. And I mean, that, that, that grabbed you. Dun, 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 dun. And it was meant to be that. You're talking about stabbing somebody in the back. back to, it's, meant, it's meant whatever you're saying, the music had to walk hand in hand. You, you, they can't be uh, talking about backstabbers. And you're writing Mary Had a Little Lamb. The, the, the two, everything has to match. Well, it actually has a kind of action film right. sound to it. Backstabbing is action. When you talk about, then you listen to the, the uh, smile on your face. All the time they want to take your place. Those backstabbers—that's that's mysterious, man. That that's 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 dangerous stuff, boy. So you want to use to amplify what it is that they're talking about and what they're singing about. Okay, here's the OJ's backstabbers arranged by my guest Tom Bell. OJ's big hit, Backstabbers, a Philadelphia International Records hit, helped establish the record label. And my guest, Tom Bell, arranged that. And um, you're associated with the Philly sound. You moved to Philadelphia when you were about five. You were born and spent the first five years of your life in Jamaica. Yeah, that, that, I was born in, in Kingston, Jamaica, but I was moved, my parents moved me here when I was about uh, three, three or four years three ago. Three or four, okay. Yes. Um, so your parents were, were Jamaican. Yes. So did you did 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 you feel culturally different when you were growing up? Well, at times, at times because my mother talked funny, and uh, my father. Most people never saw my father because he used to work twelve, fourteen hours a day. Culturally coming up because uh, I, I remember when uh, the kids would meet my mother and look at me. What, what what's wrong with your mother, man? What do you mean what's wrong with my mother? Why she talks so funny? Hold it. They weren't used to hearing black people speaking uh, like that, speaking the, the King's English in, in a certain kind of way. And so they thought, something was, what's wrong now? That, now you're going to fight. You don't talk about somebody's mother now. Hold it. What do you mean something wrong with her? Why she dressed funny and stuff, man? What kind of family do you come from? And then you meet my grandfather, which is even worse. And he, oh, <laughs> Why? Why oh, was he worse? He would, he, would, he would wear the top hat. 
and wear the long coats and the boutonniere, which what you call a, a flower in the lapel. And, uh, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. He was a doozy, and, and uh, guys really laugh at him. He, he taught botany, didn't he? Yeah, he was a botanist. He was a botanist and a horticulturist. He had two Ph. degrees. And what did your mother do? Mother was actually, she was an executive secretary to, uh, to the, one of the, 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 the principal people at the university. She could type like 140 words a minute on, on a manual typewriter. She does not like electric, and she takes um, dictation. So tell me, you know, you, you grew up, um, your parents were Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Um, you listened mostly to classical music until yeah. you were in your teens. Yes. So when you started producing soul music and rhythm and blues, did you feel like you had just like a different frame of reference than the singers and musicians, particularly the singers that you were working with? I didn't know the difference. I, didn't, I don't know the difference. And they might have known the difference, but they didn't talk about it. They didn't say, well, what is this? They, they didn't say that because they were in the same boat. We were all coming up and had nothing to get. We had nothing to lose because we were all poor together and we were all were hungry together. Were you poor when you were growing up? It sounds like oh, your mother yeah. had a really decent job. Yeah, but that <laughs> that doesn't mean anything because you have decent bills. Remember, there was a lot of us. There was a ten of us. So um, we didn't have the best of, let's put it like this. We didn't have the best of anything, but we had what we needed. We got, we, I didn't have the, most of my clothes and things. I got them were handed down from my older brothers. I don't think I had my my own first pair of underwear, underwear, until I was about 18 or 19 when I started on, on my own because my brother was in the military. And so I, I thought everyone wore green underwear. That's military underwear. <laughs> I didn't know. We had what we needed. We didn't have any extras, and we didn't know the difference. We did not know the difference because everybody in the neighborhood didn't have anything either. So we were all happy, happy as a termite in a lumber yard. We're listening to Terry's 2006 interview with Tom Bell, one of the architects of what became known as the Philly Sound. Bell died last month at the age of 79. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to uh, your production and songwriting work. I want to play something that you, you did, did with the Spinners. Uh, now, they had their first Top 40 hit in 1961, but you were working with them uh, in the 70s. Yes. Uh, what state was their career in when you started to work with them, and how, how did you get matched up? Their career wasn't in great shape. Uh, at the time, I don't think the company that they were with, in fact, I know that they, they, uh, they got, had gotten rid of them, or they had left. Somewhere along the line, they part a company, Motown and them part a company, which is very easy to do. When you, when you come as, become as big as a CBS and Atlantic Records, you have so many artists you don't really have the, the time to devote to every last artist. You have to have that amount of producers, that amount of arrangers, that amount of everything, and things can, can slip through the cracks. So when I found them, they were on Atlantic Records, and Atlantic Records was going to get rid of them because uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't, a lot of times the companies want something that's going to make fast money. And a lot of time, that's not what you're going to get. It, it takes time to build an artist. And they felt that they were they had uh, spent a few dollars on them, very few. And um, when they sent me the list of artists that they had, I happened to see the very last page. It was a, like a typographical error that the word 
All the artists were then boom, 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 boom. They must have had 60, 70 artists. Last page, very last bottom of the page, I saw S-P-I-N. That's it. It was, it was going off the page. I said, hmm, I wonder are they those spinners that I used to play piano for at the Uptown Theater. Oh. So I called them and said, but are, are these, is this, do you have the spinners from Motown? I said, oh, yeah, we can get rid of them. I said, please, well, don't get rid of them yet, because that's who I'd like to do. And when I got them, I was only, and they, they didn't want to spend any money on them, so that they allowed me to do three songs. I said, you know, I really like to do an album. No, we, we don't, we, a budget doesn't call for that. We, we only want to do three songs. I said, all right. I said, well, I think you're going to be sorry. And, of course, later on they were sorry because they had only had three songs and now they had two number ones out of the crowd and didn't have an album. They lost money. Before we hear the spinners, I have to ask you, this is the era where a lot of rhythm and blues groups are wearing orange jumpsuits and the big hats and the big hair with the big bushy sideburns and gold medallions. And, you know, what did you think of that? Did you ever dress that way? And what did you think of of that as as stage clothing, did it work for you? I never paid any attention to it. I never, I never dressed. How could you not? Pay? It's so unmissable. <laughs> so. <laughs> my mind, I'm, I'm a weird guy. My mind is is on music all the time, and uh, the things that most that, that, that most people see, I don't even see. I don't pay attention to it. I, I don't pay attention to the uh, the shoes, the socks, the sound, the styles, the lingo. I, I, don't, I just don't pay any attention to it. It's not. It's not. It doesn't affect me. I don't hear it. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for talking well, with you. us. Thank you for asking me to come. It's been my pleasure. Coming back to Philadelphia and sitting with you guys, WHYY used to be at 46 in Market That's Street. right. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Clark and the, and the boys. I remember those days a long time ago. Composer, arranger, and producer Tom Bell, one of the architects of the Philly Sound. Bell died December 22nd at the age of 79. Here's the Spinner's 1972 hit, I'll Be Around, which he co-wrote. John Powers reviews White Noise, the new film from Noah Baumbach. This is Fresh Air. The new film White Noise, now streaming on Netflix, is the latest from Noah Baumbach, whose last movie, Marriage Story, was nominated for six Academy Awards. Based on a novel by Don DeLillo, it stars Adam Driver as a professor whose family and friends face all manner of disasters, both personal and public. Our critic at large, John Powers, enjoyed the movie and says he admires Bombach's attempt to do something new. These are frustrating days for ambitious American filmmakers. 
Critics and older filmgoers bemoan that our screens offered little more than blockbuster franchises and cheap horror pictures. Yet when directors try to make something different and daring, they usually get thumped if they don't completely succeed. Take the new Netflix film White Noise, the latest film from Noah Baumbach, best known for movies like The Squid and the Whale and Marriage Story. The movie is adapted from Don DeLillo's 1985 novel, a cool, dazzling book shot through with so many shifting ironies that virtually every reviewer has described it as unfilmable. Well, Baumbach has filmed it, and though I can't call his adaptation a triumph, a lot of the reviews strike me as being ungenerous to a brave attempt. White Noise is bursting with fun things to watch. And though the story takes place in the 1980s, it tackles present-day preoccupations, human-caused disaster, media saturation, drug addiction, and consumerism. A deglamorized Adam Driver stars as Jack Gladney, a professor in the popular department of Hitler Studies, a program he invented not because he admires Der Fuhrer, but because Hitler is a strong brand in the intellectual marketplace. He lives in a cozy college town along with his slightly dippy fourth wife, Babette, played by Greta Gerwig with big bouncy curls, and their kids from assorted marriages. Whether the Gladneys are all having breakfast or driving in their station wagon, their scenes crackle with the sometimes inane, sometimes pointed texture of family crosstalk. Their story unfolds in three very different chapters, all tinged with satire. The first part lays out the Gladneys' life. In the second disaster film chapter, a calamitous train wreck menaces their town with a so-called airborne toxic event, whose foreboding black cloud forces them to flee to a camp for evacuees. Once that gets sorted out, the noirish chapter 3 tells the story of Babette's use of a mysterious drug called Dilar, and the violence it engenders. While this may make white noise sound dauntingly dark, its default tone is actually jaunty, if ironically so. Baumbach creates scenes that recall popular TV shows like The Simpsons and Stranger Things. And in Don Cheadle's character, a professor named Murray, you get an upbeat version of a Greek chorus who sounds happy as a clam no matter what he's discussing. Here in a class, Murray begins by talking about the death of his specialty, Elvis Presley. And, as in an academic battle of the bands, Jack tries to top him with the fall of Hitler. Elvis fulfilled the terms of his contract. Excess, deterioration, self-destructiveness, grotesque behavior, a physical bloating, and a series of insults to the brain, self-delivered. This place and legend is secure. He bought off the skeptics by dying early, horribly, unnecessarily. No one could deny him now. His mother probably saw it all as on a 19-inch screen, years before her own death. Picture Hitler, near the end, trapped in his Fuhrer bunker beneath the burning city. He looks back to the early days of his power, when crowds came, mobs of people overrunning the courtyard, singing patriotic songs, painting swastikas on the walls, on the flanks of farm animals, Crowds came to his mountain villa. Crowds came to hear him speak. Crowds erotically charged the masses he once called his only bride. Although Bombach has a real gift for domestic realism, he's always been drawn to the audacity of the French New Wave. 
He loves its formal iconoclasm and juxtaposition of tones, from the lyrical to the intellectual to the silly. He attempts such a tonal collage here, and I regret to say that his white noise doesn't hold together as well as DeLillo's. In fact, watching White Noise reminds me a bit of watching the work of the New Wave's greatest genius, Jean-Luc Godard, who was, as it happens, a huge influence on DeLillo. Godard's movies always tended to shuffle brilliant scenes with sections that leave you weak with boredom. You get the same unevenness here, but Baumbach is less intimidating than Godard or DeLillo, neither of whom ever worried about making the audience happy. Baumbach keeps white noise on the lighter, less political side of the ledger, as in the joyous supermarket finale that's miles from DeLillo's trademark sense of paranoia and dread. Laced with good jokes, the movie brims with terrific moments, be it Murray's magnificent riff on Hollywood car crashes, which he sees as an expression of American optimism, or the sly sequence at the evacuee camp that seems to come from a missing movie by Baumbach's friend and collaborator, Wes Anderson. Early on, Jack and Babette have a talk in which each admits that they hope they die before the other. It's partly funny, partly not, and it underscores White Noise's obsession with death, the fear of dying, and especially the countless ways we fend off that fear. By turning catastrophes into media spectacles, by reducing the genocidal Hitler to a kind of pop icon, by smoothing ourselves out with dodgy drugs, and by pretending that the disasters we see on TV could never hit us. And if all else fails, the movie assures us, we can always go shopping. John Powers reviewed the new movie White Noise, now streaming on Netflix. On Monday's show, Jonathan Escoffery. His book of interconnected short stories, If I Survive You, is on our book critic Maureen Corrigan's Best of 2022 list. The main character, like Escoffery, is the American-born son of Jamaican immigrants trying to figure out how race and racism work in America and where he's supposed to fit. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Adam Staniszewski. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley. Thank you.